chapter 8, beginning in verse 31 to verse 36. It is printed for you in the bulletin, and there's also pew Bibles for your reference. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the word of the Lord. O gracious God and Father, as we come this morning to seek your truth, to abide in your word, We ask that you would set us free from those things that enslave us. That you would give us true freedom. And as we come to behold Jesus Christ, may we be transformed into his image. For we pray this in his name. And amen. Amen. You may be seated. How do people become enslaved? How do people who are free become enslaved? Rome enslaved its population by feeding them bread and giving them games, entertainment. They distracted them with the games and they fed them just enough to subsist, to distract them from politics which enabled the ruling elites to take more and more of their freedom. So in in essence, bread and games were used to keep the population, the masses controlled, politically passive through appeals to their basic needs and pleasure. We often think of that movie from Gladiator, Are You Not Entertained?, And they kept the masses enslaved to their passions, their desires, their base impulses, so that they could slowly rob them of more and more of their freedoms. Does that not describe what is happening to us today in the West? But what is freedom? We speak of political freedom, religious freedom, freedom of speech, economic freedom, and it is easy to be moved with passion by such ideas. We can rally together and fight against tyranny, seeking to bring liberty to those who are oppressed. I did that after 9-11. But when you get political and economic and religious freedom, when you get free speech and the, the freedom from want of poverty, and are you really free? In what sense is that freedom? What does Jesus mean when he says, you will be free indeed? You see, Jesus challenges the Jews who had believed in him. These are the Jews among the crowd that are inclined to to trust in him. But remember, just as in chapter 2 and in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, Jesus does not entrust them because their faith is superficial. 
They like the signs. They like getting their bellies filled with the bread. They love the miracles. But is that that belief that will bring true freedom? Jesus cuts to the heart of their religious hypocrisy, calling to them to something more than that kind of superficial faith. Something more than a genetic bloodline to a chosen race. He wants them to know the truth. He wants them to have real freedom, to be free indeed. But what is that kind of true freedom? And to answer that question, I want to work backwards through this text and unpack first the slavery of sin before opening up the freedom of a Christian. So first, notice how Jesus' offer of freedom in verse 32 provokes their defensive response in verse 33. We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. As we've noted before, John often employs irony. Isn't it ironic that a people who are currently under Roman rule, at that very moment, they're not free. They can't just do whatever they want as a nation. And think back through their history. Is this a people that's always been free, that's never been enslaved? Name a a political power over the Middle East that wasn't over Israel. Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, 430 years as slaves in Egypt. And yet they say, we have never been enslaved. Isn't that ironic? How is it possible for these educated men to overlook their own history? I don't think that it's ignorance. I think what they're claiming is not that in their history they weren't enslaved by other nations, but, but that because they are Abraham's children, despite their outward situations, they were free. They were claiming the covenant promises that God had made them a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Exodus 19.5 Now, the question remains, does that make you free? If you belong to that people who are called to be a holy priesthood, a a royal nation, does that make you free? Can you be free indeed just by belonging to the right group? Can you be free if you're baptized? Is that what sets you free? Jesus is drawing a distinction that will get made often throughout Scripture. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Romans 9.6 The distinction between them is one of faith. It is not the outward condition of being circumcised, of being a part of the people of God, but the circumcision of the heart that matters. You can have all the outward trappings of religion and still be enslaved to sin. For everyone who practices sin, as Jesus said, is a slave to sin. Verse 34. Some trust their whole life in their church going and their giving and their Bible reading and their pious prayers. And yet Jesus warns not to trust in self-righteousness. You will not be saved because Abraham is your father. 
or because you were a good reformed Protestant. You will be saved because you trusted in Jesus Christ and you persevered through obedience to his word. You will be saved because you are born again and you bear fruit accordingly. And in that way, it doesn't matter if Abraham is your father. In that matter, it doesn't matter if you're Caesar on the highest leader of Rome. If you practice sin, then you are enslaved. You may think yourself free, but you are a slave. But sin is funny. It has a funny way of acting. It makes us think we are free. Eve was deceived by the serpent's offer to take the illicit fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and become like God. In one sense, the serpent offered her absolute freedom. Who's freer than God? And the lie the serpent peddled was that God was being stingy with his freedom. Wanting to keep man enslaved to his commandments. And all the serpent offers is freedom. Freedom from God's tyranny. And once the trap is set and the bait is taken, it becomes very, very clear to man that what looked like freedom was actually death. Notice Jesus is addressing Jews. That is the church. And even more specifically, Jews that have an inclination to believe in him. These are not even the hostile Pharisees. These are the Jews that are, they have that kind of superficial faith. But they're interested, they're seekers. But the problem is, They have given in to sin's offer of freedom by elevating their religious tradition above God's actual word. By doing this, they have unwittingly made sin their master. We'll find out later on in this text in chapter 8 that they actually want to kill Jesus. A clear violation of God's commands. Thou shalt not murder. But they're willing to set that aside because Jesus is the wrong kind of Christ. And he's saying blasphemous things. They're upholding their religious traditions, not actually upholding God's word. They feel that they are justified in this. I've seen this play out in the church in the most destructive ways. When you gossip and slander and bite and devour your brother or sister in Christ because they don't do what you want. Or they don't follow your carefully held traditions. Don't you just murder their reputation? You elevate your desire for some ministry in the church over actually loving your brother and sister in Christ. That only proves that your favored tradition, which may have at one time fostered or even deepened faith the tradition might have been good but after a while it becomes a bludgeon that we use to maim others we sit down and we look down on others who don't do the same things we do they don't go to the same bible studies we go to they don't want to put their children in children's church have you not done just what the hypocritical jews are doing to jesus Are you not proving Jesus' point that sin, not Jesus, 
is your master. Nothing, nothing Jesus teaches is more enslaving than religious traditions, than religious hypocrisy. Clean cups on the outside, but filled with poison. Sin offers freedom, but it will enslave you and bring you only death. The same seductive lie plays out on on screens in the privacy of homes. This pornography promises the thrill, the freedom of infidelity without the repercussions. However, don't be deceived, for you may one day awaken to, to the realization that you have surrendered your strength to a screen. You're no longer capable of maintaining a real-life relationship with a woman. A woman who is mysterious and unique and, and requires nurturing and care, who will only open up to you if you provide for her and protect her and create a safe place for her to flourish. And that requires discipline and patience and skills that you must develop over a lifetime. But the rewards are, are fruitful companionship and a partner to navigate and shape the world with. This is unlike the instant gratification of porn with, with artificial women who are ever ready and willing to cater to your every desire. The only reward to pornography is death. There is no freedom there. Sexual sin is just one example of sins that our society are constantly pushing in front of us, offering us freedom. And embedded in them are hooks. Hooks that catch us. Consider another food. Take Dunkin' Donuts. Doesn't it promise the same freedom? Only to enslave you to a meticulously engineered blend of sugar, salt, and fat, ensuring lifelong addiction. One day you may find yourself having consumed your life away, and your body is riddled with diabetes, and your organs are failing under the strain, and the enticing promise of delicious food has trapped you. It offered you freedom, but it brings only death. And the same principle applies to consumerism. Many people operate under the belief that acquiring the right item will bring them happiness, that shopping equates to freedom. However, with each purchase, they only sink deeper into debt, and the elusive happiness and true freedom they seek is pushed farther and farther away. You might justify your purchase because it's a good deal. It's 150% off. It's still $500 that you don't have. Or maybe you got it at a thrift store, but you don't need it. But it's the underlying motive behind the shopping, the insidious falsehood that one more purchase will grant you freedom. That's the issue. Yet you fail to realize that you have become a slave to your debt. Maybe sex or food or shopping is not your thing, but you love control. 
You seek freedom by trying to control others. Men classically do this by using their strength to coerce others, especially women and children. Through physical or verbal abuse, you might seek to use your power and authority to control others. However, a more prevalent issue, particularly within the church, involves women who exhibit abusive behaviors. This type of toxic femininity is a form of control where a woman manipulates others through her emotions, through her tears and and guilt trips and and more. She often portrays herself as a victim to elicit sympathy, and then she uses flattery or withholding of affection to exert control. And this often occurs with individuals who unknowingly play the role of the white knight, rushing in to rescue the perceived damsel in distress, and they fail to realize that Milady is the, the abuser, the manipulator. And the men are, they are targeting are her victims. I've even seen women exhibiting this behavior to their own children. And it's a form of control. Regrettably, these strategies are, are playing out not only within the church, but also in the political realm and campuses everywhere. As our society can continues to become more and more feminized. What is cancel culture but toxic femininity on the campus? It's a form of control, and it offers freedom, but it ends in devastating broken relationships. The the desire for control may appear to offer freedom, but it leaves communities rife with this unchecked sinful conduct. And pulpits, they don't want to preach about it. Because why? 75% of their congregation is women. Engaging in sin enslaves you to its power. Making it your master. Sin often deceives you with a promise of freedom if you succumb to it. However, what looks like freedom is nothing more than a form of bondage and it leads inevitably to divine judgment and the prospect of hell. This is a prison of darkness filled with immense suffering and pain beyond your wildest imagination. And I have painted these sins in stark contrast because I want to shake you up. I want you to ask yourself, where am I seeking freedom? Where am I trying to find freedom? Is it in Jesus? Or is it what the world is offering you? There are hundreds and thousands of freedoms that the culture around would love to give you. But I promise you, They will enslave you in sin and they will lead you to death. But the good news is Paul tells us in Titus 3, he says this in verse verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. See, Jesus came to save us from sin's grip on us, to liberate us from bondage to sin, and set us at liberty to devote ourselves to good works. Let's look closer at the freedom of a Christian. The freedom that Jesus offers to those who abide in Him, in His Word. Saying, the truth will set you free, in verse 32, is the same as saying, Jesus will set you free. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14.6. So true freedom comes when Jesus sets you free. To be free indeed you need to be liberated from that which you were enslaved to. As we have already noted this is, this is not through a genetic test. It's not like everyone needs to go and, and, and see if somehow they can all the way back trace themselves to Abraham. It comes by abiding in Jesus' word. And that word abide is, is an important word in John's gospel. And we've, we've already encountered it a few times. And it's, it's going to be very, very important in chapter 15. And I want to spend a moment just thinking about this concept of abiding. What it means to abide in His word. What it means to abide in Christ. Jesus has already said in John five thirty seven, And the Father who sent me has Himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You see, belief in the one that the Father has sent, Jesus, is receiving His word, the Father's word. What is that word? This is my Son, who I am well pleased with, and believing it. That's what it means to abide in the word of the Father. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, so that by believing you may have life in Him. And again, in John 6, verse 55, he says, Jesus says, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. By abide, Jesus is articulating an important theological concept that Paul and and the rest of the New Testament authors will flesh out. And that is the doctrine theologians often call our union with Christ. To abide in Christ is to be in vital union and communion with Him. He may be, we are often accustomed to think about salvation in terms of justification. God's declaration of not guilty to sinners. Or in terms of sanctification, that the Holy Spirit renovates our lives and makes us holy. 
Or we may think of salvation in terms of adoption. God bringing us into His family and giving us an inheritance as the sons of God. But sometimes when we isolate these terms from each other, or we elevate one instead of another, we get a truncated view of salvation. It is much better to see our salvation in terms of our union with Christ. When God the Son comes to earth and takes on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, He unites in His person God and man in one body. Two distinct natures in one person. He is in Himself the reconciliation of God and man. The startling thing about Christmas is not that a baby is born in Bethlehem to a virgin. The startling thing is that God came. God came! And He took on flesh. And He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the marvel of Christmas. And the startling thing grows into something almost inconceivable, at least by human standards, when the God-man Jesus Christ offered up His own life as a sacrifice for sin. Like the high priest in the Old Covenant would bear the sins of His people, He would come before the mercy seat of the Lord with the blood of their sacrifices to make atonement for their sin. And he wore an ephod with all the twelve tribes of Israel inscribed on precious stones. He carried all of Israel into the presence of the Lord and atoned for them, for their sin, once a year. That is what The God-man Jesus Christ does for us. He carries our sins in His death on the cross. And He covers them all in His precious blood, making atonement for our sins. There on that tree, and for three days, Jesus bore an eternal punishment for each and every enslaved sinner that was given for Him to save. An eternal punishment Can you imagine? It was as if you yourself, with all your sins and all your guilt, hung there on that tree and descended into the grave and endured the whole weight of God's wrath for your sins, only to rise victorious from the dead three days later. You were there with Christ because you were united to Him as a body to a head, as a branch to a vine, as a bride to her husband, and becomes one flesh. These metaphors help to describe the reality of your union with Christ. And out of that, out of that vital union with Christ, comes your justification and your adoption, and your sanctification, and your final glorification. But none of those benefits are outside of Christ. All of them take place in Him, and you are in Him. And therefore, you have salvation. That is the point of Jesus' comparison between the slave and the son in verse 35. 
He says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Those who are enslaved to sin are not free. But the son is. He remains forever. So if he makes you free, then you are truly free. When Jesus liberates you from slavery to sin, he frees you from one master to serve another. And so Jesus adds the qualifier in verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. The important aspect of our union with Christ is perseverance. For that is the mark of genuine faith. When someone remains in Jesus' word. One New Testament commentator, D.A. Carson said, quote, a genuine believer remains in Jesus' word. His teaching, that is. Such a person obeys it, seeks to understand it better, and finds it more precious, more controlling, precisely when others when other forces flatly oppose it. For true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is a genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. Abiding in His Word means obeying the Word of Christ. This obedience is a privilege. It's not drudgery. We, we get to obey. Not we have to obey. Martin Luther, in, in one of his very early tracts that helped launch the Reformation called The Freedom of a Christian, he wrote this. The Christian individual is a completely free Lord of all, subject to none. The Christian individual is a completely dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Did you hear that? The Christian is completely free, Lord of all, subject to nobody. The Christian is completely a dutiful servant of all, subject to all. How can both of those things be true at the same time? How can you be a free subject to none and yet a servant and subject to all? I would highly commend to you this tract it's not long, but Luther is essentially saying we are free as regards our salvation. That is, it's by justification alone, by faith alone, we are justified and not by works. It does not consist of our having done anything, but by God's grace, it is ours by faith alone. And this inner freedom of a Christian who has been freed from the bondage of sin's dominion, and he is chiefly concerned with refuting, of course, the papists who sought to make works the means of your freedom. And we're not immune from that kind of impulse, are we? As it regards your salvation, you are completely free, subject to none. And that means when someone tells you that you are not being faithful, that you are not involved in the church since you, you don't make it to the women's Bible study because you're at home caring for your household, you can scoff at them. You can laugh at them in their face. 
And you can say, I am completely free, Lord of all, subject to none. Never, ever let someone rob you of your assurance by their legalistic standards of what they think you must do. Your confidence rests on the Son. And He has set you free. And if He sets you free, you're free indeed. But Luther answers what seemed like a contradiction, showing how at the same time, the Christian is a completely dutiful servant of all, subject to all. By saying it this way, Luther is wrestling with the age-old question from those who hear about our freedom in Christ and say, why not sin that grace may abound? The only answer is by no means. May it never be. To put this contrast in another reformational term, we may say that the faith that alone justifies is never alone, but is always accompanied by good works that flow from them. What place does good works have in this freedom we have as a Christian? An essential one, as James says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James 2.26 Works do not grant you freedom. Jesus grants you freedom. And if Jesus grants you freedom, you are free indeed. Do not mistake this. But once free, you will do good works. Not merely of duty, but of delight. Delight in pleasing your Father and His Son who has set you free. So Jesus says, you will know you are truly my disciples if you persevere in your obedience, bringing forth the righteous fruit of that freedom that you have in Him. Knowing the truth is then knowing Christ who has set you free to obey Him. And this perseverance consists of making what is your inner reality, that freedom in Christ, into your outer reality. Your sanctification is living out of what is already true of you. How do you imagine children of God live? How do you imagine that they live? Well, live like that. We need not guess. Jesus and the apostles very ably describe what that looks like in great detail. But it can be summarized in this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So abiding in Jesus' word is to allow faith to work through love. What characterizes those who practice sin is slavery. What characterizes those who the Son has set free is love. But lest you be ignorant of sin's designs, your old man dies a thousand deaths before you are rid of all the remnants of the flesh. And this constant war, the spirit against the flesh, is our present struggle in the body. So don't think just because you have been freed from sin's dominion and now serve as a slave of righteousness that you will not fall into the practice of sin. 
The habits of the heart die hard. And it is painful. It is painful to bring forth love. And I don't mean our own definition of love, but Scripture's definition. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Which one of us can say, I have arrived at giving that kind of love? None. Not one of us. For we often find a contrary law at work in us that makes us impatient and cruel. And we envy and boast and we are arrogant and rude. And we always insist on our own way. We're irritable and we hold grudges and rejoice in unrighteousness. And we disparage the truth. When we crumb, and all the while we crumble under the first hardship into doubt and despair until we finally just give up on love altogether and we become an old curmudgeon. The freedom Christ gives is liberating. As we have considered these words of Christ, I want you to leave this place with these questions in your mind. Where am I seeking Freedom. What sins are enslaving me? What of my besetting sins constantly trips me up? And if Christ has set me free, do I abide in his word through obedience? You would do well to ask daily such questions, begging the Holy Spirit to show you your sins and remind you of your freedom in Christ. If the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we are so deeply humbled And we mourn our own sins as we consider that you bore them all on our behalf. Freeing us from the bondage of sin and death. And putting us at liberty to walk in righteousness. We marvel at your grace and mercy that sent your only son to stand in our place and purchase our freedom. And give us that great declaration that we are free in Him. Father, bring forth the fruits of that freedom in our lives in demonstrations of love, in faith, and its obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name and amen.